All right, part 21, if I have my numbers correct now. Part 21. We've covered a lot of things. We've, uh, we've covered how many theses so far? Two. Number one and number two. Number two, what did we do with number two? What was the kind of the focus? I know we kind of went in a different direction than they went, but it had to be discussed. So uh, thesis number two was, anybody remember? Yeah, the only orthodox teacher is the one who presents all articles of the faith according to scripture and rightly distinguishes from law and gospel. Makes sure that makes the proper distinction. And I focused on what there? That the reality is that we, we think we do these things, but no one does because uh, I said that there are three things true of every pastor, and what are they? Fallible, sinners, a human, right? And what's true of every peop- uh, all the people sitting in the pew? Fallible, sinners, a human. And so that creates a situation where the preacher tends to preach more his perspective, and the people tend to hear from their perspective and everyone just kind of goes and does their own thing. I know that you say that Christians will deny it and deny it and deny it. But if it look, if we, we just have to be honest, if if the scriptures are the truly the, the authority, and we're teaching the scriptures and we're properly distinguishing between law and gospel and all the things that everyone claims is happening, then there wouldn't be thousands and thousands and thousands of denomination church splits, church splits, people leaving churches, disagreement, 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 because uh, there can only be so many disagreements when you're dealing with one book. And you would think so. So something else is involved, and what's involved is us, and what's in, is our sinful nature, our pride, our arrogance, our, our unwillingness to even study, um, draw conclusions, and all the problems that arise from it. So we spent a lot of time on that, it went in a, a, probably a direction that most people didn't think it would go, but that's, that's why we do this, all right? So that brings us tonight. The goal is just to make it through one, if we can. <laughs> I don't think we'll be able to. We're, I think we're just going to get like uh, to the third paragraph and everything's going to fall apart. I think that's what's going to happen. All right, but here we go. All right. Thesis number three. Everybody have it down? Written down? Remember, you can look at the PDF if you need to and the Church One app or the Sermons 2.0 app. But thesis number three is rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult, and the highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular. Now, they claim, and we left this out, it is taught only by the Holy Spirit in the school of experience. Now, you know my issue with uh, Christians claiming that we're being taught by the Holy Spirit. What is my problem with that? Why aren't they told the same thing, right? If, if Christians are being taught by the Holy Spirit, yeah, I mean, there should be one church. We're all being taught by the Holy Spirit. So everyone claims we're being taught by the Holy Spirit, but then obviously, so that, and, and you know what, what, what is the negative consequences of saying uh, that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth and we're taught by the Holy Spirit? What is the negative consequences of that teaching? I want you to think about what is the negative consequences of the teaching that the Holy Spirit's the one who teaches us and the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. What is the negative consequence of that teaching? It's inevitable. Come on. 
What's the inevitable negative consequence of that teaching? Well, I mean, everyone, obviously that's the natural, that's the natural consequence. Everyone's going to think that our doctrine is from God. But there's an, a negative consequence, a negative unintended consequence that no one ever thinks about. All right. Well, okay. Well, if you, if you think about it this way, this would be the this should be the logical conclusion. Remember, the the whole problem in Christianity that I constantly have is we make claims and we never take them to their logical conclusion. I'm always talking about that, right? So let's take it to the logical conclusion. The Holy Spirit leads us into truth. The Holy Spirit is our teacher, and the doctrine of Victory Baptist Church in Ovalo, Texas is true because the Holy Spirit taught it to us as true. So then immediately take it to its logical conclusion. Everyone who disagrees with us, not only are they wrong, they're not saved. Because if we're taught by the Holy Spirit and they don't end up to the same conclusion, what would have to be the answer? Why, weren't, why didn't they come to the same conclusion? They're not saved. Now, now, people may not say that, but it doesn't matter if you say it. That's the logical conclusion of your position. It's like the same thing saying, hey, the way I know someone is saved is by what they do. Well, the logical conclusion to that is we're saved by works. Well, no, 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 I'm not saying that. It doesn't matter if you're saying it. It's the logical conclusion. Right, right. So in this case, hey, I, I believe this doctrine because I was taught by the Holy Spirit. Bobby doesn't believe this doctrine. One of us can't be saved. Or neither one of us can be saved. There, so, there, there's only so many options. Because, wait, he's got the Holy Spirit, I got the Holy Spirit, but I came to this conclusion, he came to a different conclusion, and if the Holy Spirit's doing the teaching and the leading, there, there, I mean, there's not a lot of good answers. Right, exactly. I mean, it, le- it leads to millions of problems, right? Exactly. And you can say, no, no, we just have a difference of opinion. There is no difference of opinion if the Holy Spirit's doing the teaching. It, I mean, that, that's not a difference of opinion. It's like, wait a minute, either someone's not hearing the Holy Spirit, so he's not a very good teacher, he needs to speak up, right? You can put the blame on the Holy Spirit somehow. You can try to put the blame on someone else, but then why can't the Holy Spirit overcome my stubbornness, Right? So that, like, he should be able to get my attention. It just leads to all kinds of problems. So this book, multiple times, in different places, will say the Holy Spirit teaches. Uh, no. Law and gospel is not taught by the Holy Spirit. No doctrine is taught by the Holy Spirit. No theology is taught by the Holy Spirit. When the Bible speaks of it, it will, it will lead them into all truth. That is for the disciples and the writers of the New Testament because we believe the New Testament was produced inspiration right? By inspiration, that they were moved by the Holy Ghost to write. So we believe the New Testament is the product of the Holy Spirit's leading and teaching. My life, your life, the Holy Spirit's not... We have the completed revelation, now we have to figure it out. And what? And how do we figure it out? With the same way we figure it out any other reading document, Right? We read words, we understand words, context, syntax, definitions, all of those kinds of things. So I know that that obliterates the, that, well, that puts us at odds with almost every church. But 
I'm sorry. If the Holy Spirit's guiding us, you've got to explain to me 2,000 years of disagreement, 2,000 years of church splits, 2,000 years of fighting and arguing. That is, if the Holy Spirit, remember people always say God is not the author of confusion? Well, if the Holy Spirit's the teacher, he is the most confusing teacher in the history of all humanity. Because give me a break. I mean, there's no, there's no agreement on it. And everybody say, no, there, you always exaggerate the disagreement. No, just listen to preaching. Just read commentaries. You'll be like, well, that one says this, that one says this, that one says this, that one says this. And it's, it, it, at some point, you're just like, never mind. Nobody, nobody has a clue. Nobody knows. But everyone claims that it was the Holy Spirit who taught them. So immediately, we left that out. Does everybody remember that? All right, so, rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular, and I'm leaving that last part completely out. All right, here we go. Everybody got their thinking caps on? I hope so. They start off with what this thesis does not mean. All right, here we go. This thesis does not mean that the doctrine of the law and the gospel is so difficult that it cannot be learned without the aid of the Holy Ghost. Now, that's interesting, right? They say this thesis does not mean that the doctrine of the law and the gospel is so difficult that it cannot be learned without the aid of the Holy Ghost. It is easy, easy enough for children to learn. Okay? But at the present time, we are studying the application and the use of this doctrine. All right. They want to focus on application and use. All right. But before we go with application and use, I don't know how easy it is to learn. Like, they, they, I, I do understand that in the, in the Lutheran church, that the children going through confirmation have to learn, well, in a conservative Lutheran church, the proper distinction between law and gospel. But I don't know if they truly, I mean, they can, they, can, they can maybe be taught how to figure out, okay, the Bible uses this language, that's law, it uses this language, it's gospel. Maybe the basic concept, I, I think I will agree with this. The basic concept is easy enough to learn. Can we, can, do we, can we all agree on that? When you're reading the Bible and it tells you to do something, what is that? When, the Bible, when you're reading the Bible and it tells you what Christ is doing or has done for you, Gospel. That everyone can figure that out. So I think I will agree that the learning it is easy. The application and use of it may be more difficult. And that's where, that's where they tend to focus. In other words, you can know the concept, but how to apply it and how to use it can become difficult. And that's where all the disagreements really break down to, right? You know, oh, wait, 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 if you do that, you're telling people, and so then everyone starts merging the two, and then that's where everything gets messed up. So I think we can agree with that, all right? It's, it's, it's easy enough to learn that, uh, that even a child could learn it, but it's the application and the use of the doctrine that becomes very difficult. The practical application of this doctrine presents difficulties which no man can surmount by reasonable reflection. Now, this is where, here's where we're getting ready to have the problem. The Holy Spirit must teach men in the school of experience. Now, once again, it's got to be, the Holy Spirit's got to be doing the teaching. Now, they're saying in the school of experience, okay, 
But still, if the Holy Spirit's the one doing the teaching, at some point, everyone should know how to do what? Properly apply law and gospel. And clearly, that's not the case. So once again, I'm going to dismiss any putting the Holy Spirit into doing the teaching. No. Look, law and gospel is a theological concept, right? It's a biblical concept. We are what? Fallible sinners and humans. And when we take this theological concept and it's placed in our hands, right? it's a biblical concept, law and gospel. First, because we're fallible, we may not understand it correctly. Because we're sinners, there's a great chance that we may misuse it, misapply it, and twist it. And because we're human, our emotions can get involved in pride and ego, which can cause problems. So it may be, the concept may be easy to learn, but here's the thing, whatever, whatever is in the Bible, once it comes into our hands, those three problems show up. Fallibility, sinfulness, and humanity. And that's a bad mix when it comes to theology and scripture. So, but I do agree that it's the application and the use of it where the problems really, 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 really start. I, I think we can agree with that. The difficulties of mastering this art confront the minister in the first place, and so far as he is a Christian in the second place, insofar as he is a minister. So, bottom line is, this becomes a difficult concept for a pastor just because he's a Christian and just and because he's a minister but I think it's a difficult concept to apply and use for every Christian and again why is it difficult I've already I'm going to keep saying it over and over because there's three things true of us fallible sinners and human and that creates all the problems it really does now let's see if they give us any kind of example here right In the first place, then, the proper distinction between the law and the gospel is a difficult and high art to the minister uh, so far as he is a Christian. Indeed, the proper distinction between the law and the gospel is the highest art which a person can learn. Then they want us to look at Psalm chapter 51. So if you have a Bible, let's turn here. I'm a little... I've read this, so I obviously know what's getting ready to happen here, but you know I like to teach it like I don't know what's getting ready to happen because that gets us to walk through it. So I'm not going to tell you the scripture they want us to look at other than at Psalm 51, all right? I'm not going to give you the specific verses. There's two verses. Well, really, yeah, there's really one verse that they want us to look at, but we'll start in Psalm 51. Right? We'll start in verse 1. Everybody knows the historical context, right? All right? This is uh, David's confession after he has been confronted by Nathan the prophet, right? Uh, and he has found out that he is the man in, for dealing with the sin that he committed with Bathsheba. Right? Everybody knows the story. Right? David committed all kinds of sin. No question about it. Horrible sin. All right? Here is his confession. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitudes of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. So I don't want to get into a major discussion here, but just looking at verse 1, what is David relying on here? What he can do? 
He, he's relying on what God can do. All right? And I think this is important. Um, I wish we had this attitude constantly that we realize that there's, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do, right? Uh, but it, what's weird is that only, we only seem to get to this point when we have a big sin. When it's really bad, everyone finds out, we're humiliated, then we're like, Lord, you know, have mercy, but only you, only you can help me. But any other time, it's almost like, okay, well, I'm going to do better, I'm going to try better, I'll, you know, okay, I won't do that anymore. And we do a lot of focusing on what we can do, and then sometimes we still focus on all the things that we do and still think that somehow we prove we're saved. But when it all blows up, then you don't look to, you don't have anything to look to because nobody, look at that moment when David is found out that he's the man who had someone murdered and committed adultery. Nobody cares that David was a great guy. At that moment, all the, all anyone remembers at that moment, in fact, if David was alive today, he would not be known for the good. He would only be known for the bad. I mean, we know how that works, right? I mean, the, the, uh, David could have lived, I don't, we'd have to look at the total number of years he lived. You could take the total number of years he lived and nobody would care the good he did in that, they would just remember the sin. And sometimes it takes that huge sin for everyone to stop looking at what they can or can't do. What is he focused on here? What, what is he, just look at the, the, some of the key words that jump out here. Have mercy. Not, not, not because I can do anything. Don't, don't give me what I deserve. Don't give me what I deserve. Have mercy, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Look, at that moment, you need gospel, don't you? Law can't help you at this point. Law, law never helps the broken sinner because, I mean, when you really realize how bad you are, you realize that's all you've ever had. But the reality is, that's us every single day. Every single day, you've committed sin and all that you can cling to is God's mercy, His loving kindness, Him cleansing you from your sin. There's nothing you can do. And, and, and it's, it's weird how Christians can get caught up. No, this proves I'm saved. No, what proves I'm, you know what proves I'm saved? God's mercy, God's loving kindness, God blotting out my transgression, God washing me thoroughly from my iniquity, God cleansing me from my sin. That's what proves my salvation. That, that's a powerful verse. Verse two, or verse three. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. He's acknowledging what? That his sin was against God. Verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, you got to be careful. Some people would read verse 5 like David's making an excuse. Because you know how, you know how it works in, in, in 2022. It, well, it works, humans have been doing it for a long time. If someone gets caught in a sin and they confess, everyone parses the confession down to every little single word to go, oh, what? He's not really sincere. He's making an excuse. He, and nobody takes this confession sincere. And everybody's like, well, he only confessed when he got caught. Well, David is confessing because, quote unquote, he got caught. 
but we don't call into question the sincerity of it, do we? No, for some reason, his, his confession is sincere. Right? You, can, you never know this. You can't necessarily know the sincerity of something. You hope you can. But when he says those things... And Samuel? I mean, I guess. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that no matter what you do, there's always someone who will say it wasn't sincere. I mean, that's, that's just the way it works. But the reason we know it's sincere is because it ends up in inspired scripture, right? Okay, so I wish, I wish it could work that way for us. But what I want you to realize is verse 5. Some people could perceive it as like he's making an excuse. Like if you read it in a cynical way, what could you accuse David of making the excuse? What would be, well, how could you read this as an excuse? I was born this way. Not my fault. Not my fault. Now, in one way, we can all make that excuse, right? I was born this Did any of us ask for a sinful nature? I didn't ask for a sinful nature. All right? But I don't think he's using it as an excuse. What do you think he's saying here? Well, see, that would be making it an excuse. I don't think he's using it as an excuse. What do you think he's saying here? Now, if you're taught by the Holy Spirit, you'll get the right answer. Okay. If you're not taught by the Holy Spirit, you're going to get the wrong answer. Okay. Come on. Think. Thinking caps on. What is he saying here? Everybody knows this verse. You've had to do something with it in your life. Okay. I think it, if he, he says this right after saying what? What precedes this immediately? He, he's confessing his actions, right? He's confessing the action. So he goes from confessing the action to confessing his nature. I think he's arguing that my sin goes beyond my mere action. They go all the way to the core of my being. I'm a sinner in what I have done, and I'm a sinner in who I am. Right. Now that, that, is, that, is, that is real confession to confess. Not only was my action wrong, that's who I am all the way to the core of my being. And I don't know if sometimes if Christians want to acknowledge that. That is who we are at the very core of our being. We are sinners. And so typically, the re, this is the reality of Christianity. At the very core of our being, we're no different than anybody else. We are depraved and we're sinners. The only difference is between us and everyone else is we run through the garden really quick and grab some fig leaves and put them on and make ourselves look better. We know how to put on a robe of self-righteousness and pretend. But if people could see inside you and see inside me, would it be, would it be ugly to see? I mean, come on. You may, you, may, you may feel like, no, I think I'm pretty confident until it, until it starts playing. You'd be like, okay, just stop, just stop, just stop, just stop. That's how come it's foolish to point to an action to prove your salvation because whatever action you do, what's going on inside is so bad that, it, that it's, your action is not going to make up for it. So I just want you to see, I don't feel he's making an excuse. Now, so he, he has spoken of God's mercy, Right? He has confessed his action and he's confessed his nature. What does he do in verse 6? 
Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. What do you think he's trying to say in verse 6? That God's, God's desire goes beyond the mere outward all the way to the inward person. God is concerned with more than just the external, the inward. Well, what, do you, what are we going to find when we get to the inside of us? Sin. That's why he confessed his nature in 5, right? Now, what does he ask for in verse 7? Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Okay? Now, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I don't I believe David is saved man. I don't believe he's a lost man. So I won't think he's praying for salvation here. What he's asking is for his, sin, his sins to be completely forgiven, yes? Right? Okay? And to say that I'll be whiter than snow, clearly that can't be a practical thing. It has to be a positional thing. Because does David continue to sin after he sinned with Bathsheba? Of course he does. Of course he does. Yes? All right? Verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. All right? So he's asking, he, he, he wants some kind of joy to return to him. He's asking for God to restore joy. Verse 9. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now verse 10 is where thesis number 3 wants us to focus on. They want us to focus on Two verses, verse 10 and 11. All right? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, one, what's interesting, is that seems to indicate that he has the Holy Spirit. That means he had the Holy Spirit when he sinned, right? I mean, he's, I mean, he's asking it not to be taken from him. He, so that, that goes with the idea, because everyone said, well, the Old Testament saints didn't have the Holy Spirit. Well, he seems to indicate that he has the Holy Spirit, yes? Remember we talked about that in our, our teaching on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Okay, so I think that's interesting. But please note verse 10. There's a lot we could talk about here. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit, within me. I'm going to read what they have to say here. There's a lot here we could look at. All right, but let's put our thinking caps on, all right? If, if all we do is this paragraph, that's okay. Because I want us to, because they, I think they have an interesting approach here that we have to really, really think about. All right. Psalm 51, 10 through 11. David prays God for a right spirit. They don't focus on the clean heart. They focus after the right spirit. That's what they focus on. All right? Let's do this. Do you have the NIV, Stephen? What, how does it translate? Yeah. Steadfast. All right? I'm going to look it up in all the English translations. Uh, a right spirit. Right? Okay. We may have to look up the uh, Hebrew here in a minute, but let's look up all. Okay, so I'm going to read this. All right. New International, as Stephen just read it, created me a pure heart. I mean, there's so many questions I have about the heart situation. Doesn't everyone have like, lots of questions here? 
uh, like about a million. Okay, but but they, we're going to focus on uh, the the right spirit. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Uh, the New Living Translation: Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit. So we've got right, we've got steadfast, we've got loyal. English Standard, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Berean Study, right spirit. King James, right spirit. New King James, uh, a steadfast spirit. New American, steadfast. New American Standard, 1995, steadfast. New American Standard, 1977, steadfast. Amplified Bible, steadfast. Christian Standard Bible, steadfast. Holman Christian Standard Bible, steadfast. So you got a lot that goes with steadfast. What's the Hebrew word? Anybody has anybody looked it up yet? Okay. And what? Well, just uh, let's go with a Strong's definition first. What does Strong's say? To stand right. Okay. Okay, it's, 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 it's used 219 times. Yeah, there's a lot of ways of using it. To established. To, to fix, to make ready. All right, okay. Um, so let's, so I guess, stead, I don't know about, stead, I can kind of see the right showing up there. I, I think it's steadfast, in the, and I guess in the idea that it's now a fixed spirit, established spirit, one that's standing back up. All right, so let's just ask this. this let's, uh, we'll, before we read the, what they have to say about it, let's just ask ourselves, right? We've got to try to bring Psalm 51 into some kind of theological understanding, right? Because here's what we know. Does David sin in his actions? Yes. Does David sin in his desires? Yes. Is David a sinner in his nature? Yes. Is that true of everyone sitting in this room? Have we sinned in our actions? Yes. Have we sinned in our desires and feelings and emotions? Yes. Are we, have, uh, do we have a sinful nature? Yes. All right. So everyone can really relate to David's story of sinning in some way, shape, or form. Now, once we confess, he kind of gives us some pattern. What do we focus on? On what God has, can and will do for us, not what we can do, right? Because we, we're completely reliant upon God's mercy and grace. Yes, we have to acknowledge what we've done in action. We have to acknowledge our sinful nature. We're all good, good with that, all right? We need to be cleansed from our sin, all right? We have that. But how do we understand this clean heart and right spirit? Now, do we just understand this, that David simply desires this? That all this really, all this really captures is David's prayer that God would give him a clean heart and a right spirit. God, if you would just give me a clean heart and a right spirit, the, almost the idea is, I'll never do this again. If you'll give me a pure heart and a right spirit, I won't do this anymore. What does he say after uh, creating me a clean heart and uh, renew a right spirit in me? What does he say next? Okay, don't cast me from your presence. Take not the Holy Spirit. Next verse. Okay, then he asks for restoration. 
uphold me. Okay? And what does he say next? Then I'll be able to teach others thy ways. Okay. So, let's go through the things he asked for. Let's go through. So, in a sense, this is David simply making a request. Now, we get, we, and the re- reason we have to understand this is because typically we approach this as somehow this is a guarantee for you or for me when we sin. Right? I, I, I've got some, I got some major issues going on here. All right? So, let's, let's make a list. All right? What is the first thing David asked for? Number one. No, go all the way back to verse 10. A pure heart. A pure, clean heart. All right, that's number one. Number two, a right spirit. Okay, renew a right spirit. Number three, cast me not away. Number four, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Number five, restore joy. Grant a willing spirit. Is there one more or is that it? Okay, all right, all right. Grant, grant me a willing spirit to sustain. All right, so we'll just go with those six things. All right, now, let's take the first one. What do you think David means when he asks God to give him a clean and pure heart? Let me ask it a different way. Do you think God answered this prayer? Okay, so you think from this point forward, David no longer had a sinful heart. Well, pure heart is a... <laughs> if he has a pure heart, he doesn't have a sinful heart. Right? I mean, can you have a pure heart? <laughs> not practically. If your heart's pure, it's not sinful. Right? So, do you see, do you see my, my struggle here? What is the Hebrew word here for clean heart or pure heart? Let, let's look at it and see if, we're, if I'm taking it too literal. All right? Uh, creating me a clean heart. And morally. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a heart that's pure morally, ethically, ceremonially, physically. It's a clean heart. It's used 94 times, but the, uh, the uh, pure in a physical, chemical, ceremonial, or moral sense. Clean, fair, pure. But let me ask you that. How have you always understood this? How have you understood this before tonight? How, how have you understood this? Okay. Okay, so you just understand that when he asks for a pure heart, he's not asking for a literal pure heart. He's just asking, I want restored fellowship. Okay, so you didn't take it very literal. You kind of took it vaguely. Okay, all right? All right? Okay. Anybody else? What did you say? Just cleansed from his sin. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't ever perceive it that he asked for a pure heart and got a pure heart. That he didn't really mean give me a pure heart. He just means take care of my sin. Just in, in other words, all the other things he's already said prior to verse 10, he's just repeating it again. All right, that's how, that's okay. That's interesting. Okay, let's, I'm going to look up commentaries just really quick to see what they do here. Because that's interesting that y'all just take it in a very like, I mean, he didn't really mean a pure heart. Um, let's see what they say here. All right. 
Creating me a clean heart. Clean heart. This is the pulpit commentary. Do more than purify me. Do more than cleanse me. By an act of creative power, make in me a new clean heart. <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going with what they're saying here. All right. Uh, Okay, well, well, right. I mean, that would be the complete eradication of the old nature. But see, I, 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 I think there's a way to understand. I don't, okay, I'm, I'm going to be, I don't know, I don't, I think I'm probably, no, I'm going to make no one happy with my answer. I, I don't know if I can go with you guys. To, he's just kind of saying, just, just make me, I don't, I, clean, in a very vague way. It's very specific language, right? I mean, all the other play. Well, I'm just saying he's already asked to be cleansed. So I just, I have a hard time just saying that this is just, clean me generally like you've already asked you to cleanse me. I, I'm having a hard time with that, right? But there's no way I'm going to say that he said, give me a clean heart and he got a clean heart because that's crazy. That would be the eradication of the old nature completely. So I don't agree with that. I don't agree with you guys. I think the answer has to be somewhere in the middle. I think... This is reflecting the natural desire that anyone should have after we realize how guilty we are. Well, he's already asked to be cleansed. This is not asking for, he's asking for more than cleansing here. He's asking for more than cleansing. He's asking for a, a creative act. And so what I'm saying is, I think this is the natural, I don't know about you, you know, but if, if, you, if you've never experienced it, go out and commit a big sin this week, and then next Sunday you can tell me if you feel this, all right? Get, get in a big sin, and then, and then you realize, man, Lord, okay, forgive me for my actions. I am a sinner completely in my nature. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to wash me. I need you to make me clean. But what I really need is a clean heart so that I will never do this again. I think it's reflecting a natural desire when you get, when you realize how messed up you are, you, where do you, where is this the problem lie? Inside of me. The problem is inside of us. The problem isn't, well, it was a Tuesday and this happened and this happened and you know, you know, it was, it was, it was Wednesday night and I knew that's when she took a bath and no, no, the issue is inside of me. The issue, Lord created me a clean heart. I think it's simply reflecting a desire. I think he may be actually asking for it. I don't think he gets it. Because if he did, then the first time any of us sin, we'd say, God, give me a new heart, and then we'd never sin again. I mean, the way they describe a clean heart is, by your creative power, make in me a new clean heart. Well, that... Now, some people say that, well, and, and this gets crazy, and, and they almost kind of infer this. I don't think this is what they mean to say, but listen carefully to the next line. Compare the Christian doctrine of the new birth and new life. Whoa. Whoa, wait a minute. Are you going to say when, I get, when, when we get born again, we get a completely clean heart? So that we're able to not sin. Right, right. I mean, we, that's going in a... And that would seem to imply that David wasn't saved. That would really be a problem, okay? Because we know that's not... There's no way that's not... That's true. There's just no way because God has been with him all the way up. To, so that's just, no, no, no. That's, that's crazy, crazy, crazy. 
All right. Um, let's see here. I'm going to look at some of these other. Uh, uh, I'm just going to look at uh, a lot of the commentaries here. Um, create in me, rather create me, for me. The word is used of the creative operation of God. Bringing into being what did not exist before. And so in this parallel line, renew should be rather make new. In other words, the, 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 the Hebrew here is going with the idea, this is a creative power. Create something that hasn't existed before. What has not existed in David prior to this point? A clean heart. And now he's wanting that. Every time I sin, you know what I wish I could get? A clean heart. I do wish that. Um, It says, David is asking both for a new heart and a new spirit. Requests the renovation of the entire mental and moral nature, which he recognizes corrupt and depraved. Now, I do like that. This is showing that David recognizes that his entire mental, moral, and emotional makeup is corrupt. Well, he's asking that to be fixed. I agree. He wants that to be fixed. I just don't think it happens. I just don't think it happens in any, in any way, shape, or form. Um, hang on. There's a whole... This one is like they've written an entire book here. Okay. Um, well, I, I do, but now I can't just... I don't want to read this all to you. Okay. I mean, this is long. Okay. I mean, that would take a, a, a forever. Okay. Um, create in me a clean heart, O God. The word rendered create is a word which is properly employed to denote an act of creation. This, see, he's not, acting, he's not asking for cleansing. He's asking for God to create something. He's using the same word for creation. He's using to create in me. Make a clean heart. He is longing for something more. And why is he longing for a, a complete, a new heart? Because he understands three things. He is corrupt where? mentally, emotionally, and in his nature, and all the way to his very being. He knows what he is. I think this is just reflecting a desire. Does that make sense? No, or or do y'all not agree? All right? Um, Creating me a clean heart, seeing I have not only defiled myself by these actual sins, but also have a most filthy heart, corrupted even from my birth which nothing but God's almighty and creating power can purify. Do thou effectually work in me a holy frame of heart, whereby both my inward filth may be purged away and I may be prevented from falling into such actual and scandalous sins. So what David is saying is, look, hey, I know how messed up I am. The only way to stop this is what? A complete new heart. There, there, there's, there, he, is, he is specifically using words there that is talking about something far more than being cleansed. He's already used the cleansing language, right? Where, where was the cleansing language used? Well, verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from, from my sin. It all the way starts in verse 2, right? Okay, so uh, then verse 7. Purge me. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He's already used the cleansing language. Now he's using creating, creative language. Create in me a new 
heart. And then renew a right spirit. That renew is again, make a new spirit. Make, make something new in me. I need to be made new. I need to have a steadfast spirit. I need to have one that stands up, stands firm. I, that's what I need. He, David here is asking because he clearly now knows the problem is deep inside. I don't believe he gets those things, and I don't believe we get those things. Because if everyone got a clean heart and a right spirit, what should be the natural outcome of that? Sinlessness. Be a great world, wouldn't it? A great church, great family, great everything. So I don't think he gets those things. I, 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 well, I, I mean, put it this way. I know he doesn't get those things. Right? Okay? He, he doesn't get those things. Solomon didn't get those things. Nobody gets those things. You don't, none of us get those things. I think it's simply showing his acknowledgement of how messed up he is and his desire that he wants it to go away. I want it to go away. I mean, that's the, that's the, is that not the most frustrating thing of the Christian life? There's an all-powerful God sitting in heaven who tells us not to sin. Okay. We'll then take care of the problem. Okay. He did, but not in the way of making us stop sinning, but in forgiving us even though we are. That it's, it's like a completely contrary, because from a human perspective, what would you think the solution would be? Give me a clean heart and I'll stop sinning. And does that not make the most logical sense? Right? It, it's like telling, giving your kids a list of 15 rules, right? You've got the power so that they can do it, that you can help them do it, you can make sure they get it done. You're there, you can make sure it's done perfectly, but you just sit back and let them mess up, mess up, mess up, mess up, mess up, mess up, mess up. It makes no sense from a human perspective, right? Go help them do it. If you know, if you know what they need, God in a sense tells us what to do, sits back, we mess up, mess up, mess up, and says, but it's all been taken care of because of Christ. That goes, that makes no sense from a human perspective. No, no, don't, don't let me sin. Can't God stop us? Yes. And he doesn't have to stop us in the sense of saying, no, you can't do it. All he has to do is reach in and give me what? A new heart and a steadfast spirit. Because that, that problem comes from where? Inside. David knows where the problem is. He's asking for the solution. He doesn't get it. We read that like somehow he gets it. He doesn't get it. I wish he did, but he didn't. Now, this is how they handle it. I, I, I think that they do some weird things with this text here. So just stay with me. All right? See, if you, if, if you get confused here, let me know. All right. David praised God for a right spirit. After his horrible fall, the shedding of innocent blood, and the sin of adultery, David had lost assurance of divine grace. Absolution was indeed pronounced to him when he had come to a penitent knowledge of his sin. But, what, but we do not hear that he forthwith became cheerful. On the contrary, many of his psalms plainly, plainly show that he was in very great misery and affliction. 
When the messenger of God approached him with the declaration, the Lord also has put away your sin, his heart sighed. Ah, no, that is not possible. This exalted royal prophet knew the doctrines of law and gospel well. All the Psalms are full of references to the distinction between the two. But when he fell into sin himself, he lacked the ability of applying this knowledge. He cried, put a new and right spirit within me. So what they're saying is that David, their claim is that when David committed the horrible sin, right? He, and even after his confession that he was not, uh, this is the way they're telling the story. He was not immediately cheerful. He struggled and struggled and struggled. And some of the Psalms reflect his emotions. They're saying after this, after his confession. And so that what David finally has to do is they're trying to say that the right spirit here means give me a right understanding that I know that my sins have been forgiven. I don't know if we can read it that way. I don't think that that's what's going on here. All right. I will say this. It brings up an interesting subject. I just don't know if David is the right example of this. All right. So it brings up a couple of issues. So let's go through this. David commits a horrible sin. Everybody agree? All right. He broke the law. What does he need? No, he doesn't need... He, he, okay, he needs the gospel, right? Okay, right, right. I mean, because unless we're going to say David wasn't saved when he committed the sin, right? Okay, so make sure we just... I want to make sure we don't confuse that, right? He broke the law, and what's the only solution for breaking the law? The gospel, right? All right, so he needs the gospel. Psalm 51, when it starts, is it gospel-based? Yes, right? Mercy. Yeah, he's, he's, he's calling for God to do it all, right? Wash me, mercy, loving kindness. It's all, it all starts right there in verse 1, correct? Right, what are the words in verse 1? Have mercy. Unfailing love. Great compassion. He's all about what God has done. So, he breaks the law. He knows the... Um, Gospel is his only hope. After he, he relies on the gospel, he confesses. What does David confess? Action. Nature. Right? He confesses his action. He confesses his nature. Everybody got that? Everybody agree? He says, I was born, I was conceived in sin. Yes? That's confessing his nature. Then... David understands his problem is so deep that he cries out to God for what things? Heart. Right spirit. Don't take your uh, Holy Spirit from me. Remember all the things we listed, right? He cries out. But all of these things show that he understands the problem is deep inside. I don't think... Asking for the right spirit was because he was still struggling with the guilt. I don't think that that's what's referring to. I think what this is showing, he understood how deep the problem is. Now, here's the thing. Forget David, because I'm not going to go with them. I'm not going to go with the book, because I think it's a misapplication of it, right? I, they, they would have to give me more scripture to prove that once David is confronted and confesses, that he still struggles with guilt. I'd have to see, I'd ha- because we'd have to look at each psalm and go, okay, wait, was this written before? 
Okay, or, or each psalm, was this one written before Psalm 51 or after? Like, you know, we would have to, we'd have to do a lot of work there to figure that out. Here's what I will say. Is it true that for many Christians, after, a, and, and isn't it weird though? It's, it's really weird. We can commit, it's just, 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 I'll never, it's like Christian mathematics. I don't. There's prophetic aspects to it. I mean, it's poetry more than it's prophecy, but there's some prophetic parts. Right. So, so but just, just follow my logic here, because Christian, it's a weird thing that Christians do with math that I don't get. And, and I don't even know the formula, but tr- just try to make sure you understand. Christians can commit 50,000, quote-unquote, venial sins. When we, all, we, all, we commit them all the time, right? Do you love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? We fall short of that. That's a sin. Does that ever lead to someone breaking down and having... No, we, we pretty much live with it, right? We don't love our neighbors ourselves. We're not as holy as God tells us to be, which is as holy as he is. We don't, ha- we don't, we don't ha- do all those things. I can go on and on and on and on. There's lots of... Don't you agree? There's like 50,000 sins Christians can commit. A little bit of hyperbole, but you get the idea. 50,000 sins that doesn't lead to any dramatic anything, right? It may lead to, I'm feeling a guilty. I'm going to try a little harder. But it doesn't lead to discipline. It doesn't lead to anything. Right? Everybody just, we know to live with that. But we commit one big sin. Right? Whatever that big sin is. Whether it's publicly known, whether it's private, it's the biggie. Whatever the big one is. Right? You can put your list of the big ones. Isn't it amazing that for some, not only does the rest of Christianity lose their absolute mind over the big one, and even though that same person has committed 50,000 small ones, that doesn't matter. It's the big one, the big one. And that's all everyone remembers, right? And it's like, well, you do realize that person who committed the big one has committed 50,000 small ones, but you didn't have a problem with the 50,000 small ones. I mean, like, I don't understand how Christians think. 50,000 small ones, you're good. One big one, oh, that's it. Burn everything down. It's the end of the world. Why why is it the one, but not the 50,000? Does that, does that ever make any sense? Even from a biblical, have you ever been confused why David's sin is like this, you know, breaking, breaking, Fox News breaking news alert, right? David has committed adultery. And then we read about Solomon. Is there any big breaking news alert for Solomon? Does he commit adultery? Polygamy? Adultery? I mean, how many women total? Is it a thousand, right? A thousand! And nobody blinks an eye. Nobody's like, eh, whatever, whatever, whatever. Why is David like, oh my goodness! He, one, one time of adultery. Solomon's committing adultery like four times a day. Eh, no big deal. Isn't it weird how Christians have this weird, like, you commit one sin in the whole world, but all these others, it's sin upon sin upon sin upon sin, and nobody even blinks an eye. I don't, I don't understand the math. I don't understand the math. But for some, when you commit the big one, not only do you have everyone else going, it's it, you're garbage, you're trash, burn you, you, know, you crucify him. Okay, you got the big one. But isn't it bizarre how after that big one, sometimes we cannot 
get over the guilt of it. Some Christians are still struggling with sin that they committed 10 years ago, 15 years ago. This morning I did a, uh, for today's focus on self-loathing as a, a, a sign of Christian immaturity, right? Self-loathing. And someone sent me a long email talking about how they struggle with self-loathing, remembering the guilt of what they've done. And, they, and, they, and I understood what they were trying to say. On one hand, there's almost an aspect of it where, well, I'm glad I feel guilty for what I've done. I'm, in one sense, I feel glad that I feel bad. But isn't it weird that we feel bad for the one big one, but we don't have that same self-loathing for what? The f- I mean, because if, we, if, if we're going to have self-loathing for the big one, we would just live in a perpetual state of self-loathing, right? Because we commit sin what? All the time. I don't understand why the, the continual sin... Now, I'm not saying that, that, that the person who emailed, they may struggle with the everyday stuff as well. I'm just saying, in general, it's the one... that We always have certain sins that stick in our minds. There are certain sins that stick in my mind that still bother me all the time. And I did this, I did this, I did this. Why? But there's all those others, I don't give them much thought. Why is it? It's something wrong in our thinking. Well, they're the worst because they're at least the most continual. They're perpetual, right? They're perpetual. I'm never going to love God the way I'm supposed to. I'm never going to love my neighbor himself. He tells me to be holy as he is holy. I'm never going to accomplish that. So if we live in self-loathing, right? Self-loathing. I keep saying self. self Self-loathing, right? Guess what? I mean, we... I don't know what it would lead to. It would possibly lead to, to depression and suicidal thoughts. You'd just be like, that's it, man. I can't do this. I cannot do this. It's over. I'm done. I can't do this. Because the Christian life is a perpetual cycle of sin. That's all we, we sin all the time. That's why I, I'm just, I'm just, I don't understand how Christianity works. It's like everyone sins all the time until you commit the one sin, and then it's like, bing, bing, you won the lottery. Or, well, I think they're doing the lottery drawing tonight, right? For what, one billion something tonight? What is it? One, two, one point two billion. Well, that's how it works in Christianity, right? Sin, 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 and all of a sudden you commit the one sin. It's like, ding, 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 you won the Christian lottery. You are now condemned. You are now garbage. You are now trash. Everyone's going to talk about you. Public scandal. You are useless. You deserve to die. What made the one? What about the other 50,000? Isn't that so odd the way that works in Christianity? I don't understand that. I would say, well, some sins are worse than others. Okay, let's say you come up with that, that some sins are worse than others. Who has the list? Because now it's just mortal and venial. At least Catholics have a system on what to do when I commit a mortal one, right? What do we, and the Protestant world is just like, you're just supposed to go crawl in a hole somewhere and die and never be heard from again. Because you're, you're useless now. I, I don't understand the concept. So I'm saying that I don't know about David, but I think this can happen to lots of us. You can be, and I, and, and, and I know some people are going to get scared when I say this. I understand that in some sense we want to feel bad about our sin. Right? We do. Because it makes us feel like that I'm being convicted and that, you know, I know how serious my sin was. 
But there, there's got to be a there's got to be a line where all you're doing is just just bathing and self-loathing that is not beneficial to you spiritually. Because at some point, we have to be able to take our sin and say it was taken care of 2,000 years ago on the cross. It was taken care of, and it's been forgiven. And it's been washed away. It's been, as, been removed as far as the east is from the west. It's been thrown in the deepest ocean to never be seen from again. It's gone. It's forgiven. It's no more. And if that is true, then I can, if I continue to feel guilt about it, I'm being, I, what I am doing is I'm basically calling God a liar. Look, Jesus died for it. He cleansed it. He forgave it. But I'm going to continue to, to bathe in self-loathing over it, feeling guilty and guilty about it. At some point, you got to move on. At some point, you got to say, it's been, it, it was, it was, someone died for it. Jesus was crucified for it. That sin has been paid for by the blood of the eternal son of God. Now, and I know it feels like we're doing something wrong to say, well, that sin's been forgiven. I'm moving on. Because even Christians will walk up and tap you on the shoulder and go, uh, do you remember what you did? So what are you doing? I, I'm surprised if, if, it was to, if, it was, if it was modern day Christianity, as soon as Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, you know what would have happened in modern day Christianity. Didn't you deny him three times? And you're going to preach? You're done! Go back! Get to the back of the line! Right? We know that's what would happen. It'd be all over Twitter, right? The man who denied Jesus three times is preaching a sermon. Can you believe this? The man who denied Jesus three times, he has no right. Well, while they're tweeting that, well, do you have a right to be tweeting? Because I bet you there's hundreds of sins in your life. That's the part. We are all sinners. So the self-loathing, I don't, I don't know I don't, I don't think David is saying, give me a right spirit because I'm just so overwhelmed with my guilt. I think David here is saying, look, I, the only way to stop sinning is you've got to fix me perfectly. And clearly, he's not fixed perfectly, right? No, he's not. But it's, it's showing David's heart. I think our heart should be, I want, do, you, I, do you want to be cleansed perfectly? I want to be cleansed perfectly. And the only time that's going to be fulfilled is when? Glorified, and I no longer am in this body. I'm in a glorified body, and the sinful nature is completely eradicated. But I think when it comes to law and gospel, the proper use of it, right? Because they're saying this is an art. I think the, the, the art, and I'll, and I'll end with this. Yeah, oh man, I didn't even know it was 809. Okay, all right. I'll end with this. We don't, I don't have more time to get into this, but I'll try to explain it this way. The true art of law and gospel is the correct application of it in our lives when we are confronted with our own sin. The law must condemn us and we do need to feel that condemnation. We do need to feel that guilt. We do need to feel that brokenness. But at some point, that brokenness leads us right to what? The gospel. And we lay that sin where? At the foot of the cross, covered in the blood of Christ, and we get up and we move on. That's the correct application of it. 
Now, the, the fact that we move on, some people are like, no, 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 no. That means you're not taking it serious. No, God took it serious. That's why his son paid for it. And I took it serious enough realizing I have to leave it with him because carrying it with me is not going to do anything but bring about discouragement, depression, and possibly being disillusioned with your entire Christian life. And you will have no joy. You will have no peace. The joy and peace has to come from the correct understanding of the gospel about your sin. The art of law and gospel is learned, I do believe this, in the school of experience. And that's the experience of your life and my life. Because guess what? What do we experience every day? Sin. How do we know that we experience sin every day? The law. And where should that sin drive us every day? To the cross or to the gospel. All right, we'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Very important part of the study. Forgive us for the misapplication of law and gospel in our own lives and help us be better at relying on the gospel for ourselves because we know we're all sinners. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...